So, all right, everyone. Thanks for coming. Thanks for joining. Uh, my name is Marcus. I started this meetup group roughly one year ago to talk a little bit about Jung and also to learn better myself about Jung. I read almost all the books that are commercially available, written by Jung or summarized by notes and that people took when they were on their seminars. So Jung has this very big collection, the collected works. And this is very strict. It's only stuff that was written directly by Jung and nothing else. But Jung has written a lot of other stuff like letters that are not included. And there are many, many books about letters because he had some really interesting pen pals. And also his seminars were often documented by students with notes. And they have some really cool stories because in the past they had a shorthand writing how to do it. But this shorthand writing in this time fell out of favor. So they had to get a lot of old ladies who worked as a secretary before. They were already 70 or 80 just to uh, decipher what the shorthand said. And then they could write the books. So when you um, are a little bit more familiar with books of Jung that are available today, there's a great foundation called the Philemon Foundation who publish or try to publish as a goal everything that is not collected in the collected works, but is still related to Jung, maybe letters, journals, and seminars. And the seminars are very, very good because they are not so dry academic as the books of the collected works. Like this book is very academic, empirical, and careful, and so on. And Jung worked as a scientist, and he was very conscious of that, and he wanted to make good work and convince people that there's something to it, what he's talking about. So, who was Jung? Jung was a Swiss psychologist, born in 1875, and lived and worked till um, 1961, so reached the very great age of 85 years. And he studied in Basel psychology and because he wanted to become a doctor, but found an introductionary text for psychology and got really interested in that and found out, oh, that's the thing that interests me. His literal quote is he wanted to find the reasons, like the demons inside the psyche of people that make them laugh when they should not laugh and cry when they should not cry. So these autonomous unconscious forces that bring us to do stuff that surprises ourselves. And he worked as a psychiatrist in a clinic and did empirical research in psychology, became there in contact with Freud. They had a friendship. They had a falling out because they had very different views on the psyche. And archetypes and the collective unconscious are a very strong uh, reason for that because Freudian psychology basically ends with a personal sphere and you have some basic instincts, but there's not much more. And Jung had this notion when you would see Freudian psychology, uh, you would see a house and you were living in the house and your unconscious would be this basement that you didn't know about. And you go in there and you find all this weird stuff. And Jung would say, yeah, that's true. Everybody has a house. Everybody has the cellar. But all the cellars of all the people are connected in a way. And this is a collective unconscious. So Jung experimented a lot with a technique called active imagination, where you try to conjure up fantasy. This was based because also he had visions that he tried to formalize and he tried to investigate. He explored all these concepts. And this is something that is very popular about Jung and that a lot of people know about the, the archetypes and the collective. And uh, in his later years, he was very interested in alchemy, 
for very specific reasons. And the texts there are very, very dense and difficult to get into. You need to have a very clear understanding about Jungian psychology and what he's saying with his concepts to understand where he wants to go with alchemy. But then it's interesting. It's incredibly dry. Even when you know what's going on, it's incredibly dry. The best way to describe it, to start with this house analogy, he had a dream once when he was friends with Freud. They would do dream analysis on each other. So they would tell the other person the dream and the uh, other guy would try to interpret the dream based on psychoanalysis. And there was one dream in the latter part of their friendship where Jung didn't want to talk about because he knew that Freud would not be able to understand it in this psychoanalytic frame of mind because psychoanalysis is often just find the complex and the complex in most cases is the incest complex. And he had this dream, he would have this house where he's living and he would find a basement. And the basement would be suddenly from the 18th century. And he would go lower and suddenly he would find Roman ruins under there. And below that, he would find a cave with primitive tools and drawings on the walls. And this gave him already an inclination about how the psyche is structured. And he had the feeling that there was much more going on than was talked about back then, that there are structures within the psyche that are very ancient and very old. And he coined a term there that is part of the event's name, this archetype, which he uses very, very often, especially in the context of the collective unconscious, of this really part that humans, part of human nature, and even deeper than that. For those who can speak German, archetype, can be translated as Urbild, which is in English something like primordial image. And it describes a pattern of behavior. This is a phrase that Jung uses very, very often. This is why I chose this picture for the event. You see in the event's picture a nest with two storks. And he stated that other animals or animals in general have also archetypes, have these patterns of behavior. They have behavior which is inborn and just exists in you a priori. This means even before birth, something is given to you as, let's say, basic behavioral modes that you can exist in and that you display. As the same way as a bird doesn't necessarily need consciousness to build a nest, it's just what it does when it's a nest-building bird. The same way when you have a salmon and the salmon is traveling down the river to mate, and then once it's pregnant, it will go back up to the river and get damaged on the way, die <laughs> at the spring and give birth to the, all the eggs, and the eggs then nourish on the decaying body of the parents. I didn't know that when I was a child. I was thought, okay, yeah, they go up there and then they have babies and that they horribly die and get zombified uh, up there was something that I only learned very, very much later. And it's these patterns that are repeating for any human being and in every culture. This is what interested Jung very, very much. His approach was very comparative. This means he would compare different sources of knowledge or experience and try to find commonalities. You have these fields of studies today also. You also very often have it for literary works where you try to, for example, get an idea what epoch the book fits into and that you can describe this just zeitgeist and you do it by having certain characteristics 
And you find it by analyzing a huge body of work and seeing what are similarities. And he did it the same way with archetypes, imaginary. And he had several sources of that. He, this was one of the ways he experienced that there should be some more to the psyche, things that we don't know about and things that are so unconscious and so deep that they're very, very difficult to access. When he grew up, his father was a pastor, so he was, was very familiar with all uh, religious imaginary. And he first wanted to become an archaeologist, but he had a dream that convinced him otherwise to do something else. So he had a huge interest also in foreign cultures and mythology and so on. And as he progressed further to do psychotherapy, he would have contact with a lot of schizophrenics. And because he was of the psychoanalytic school that said, okay, a person with a psychological problem is still a person and still an individual, it's not just a disease, he would listen to these persons like Freud would do. And they would tell him all this stuff and he would all accept all the stuff that he's saying to him. And he said, okay, this is gibberish. This is not understandable. And he would furthermore experience at later points that he would find suddenly similarities between the religious imagery, the mythological imagery, and also by studying old texts and also dreams. He did dream analysis. And he did it also on other continents. He traveled to America with Freud. And he would take people who were completely uneducated and just try to analyze them. And suddenly would find very strong Greek mythology imagery. And he said, okay, there has to be something that is not really taught, but just comes up as a spontaneous product of the human psyche. It pops up from time to time. And you have a well of imagery, but also behavior that just because you have human beings around suddenly comes. A very good example for this is the image of a dragon. You have practically in all human cultures, doesn't matter where they are, doesn't matter the time, they have this image of a dragon. But nowhere in the world we have a dragon. And they didn't exist, you could say, of course, you had dinosaurs and there was something like a dragon. But that was so long time ago that it's unlikely that human beings... Could remember that because mammals back there were basically rats but you have this image that is not formally communicated in a sense that it crosses cultures uh, you have some people like graham hancock who's really interesting uh, who says that they are the, the human roots are even older and human beings existed for a very long time and he sees something like a primordial band of humans who came up with something then spread through the world and further communicated these ideas. And one reason he gave for that was that all over the world, this dragon imaginary is. That you have differences between West and East, and West, you kill the dragon, and the East, the dragon is a good thing. But you still have this image everywhere. And it's weird, where does it come from? Because, yes, yeah, it's a mixture of different animals, you could argue, but it's nothing very concrete. So he would do that. He would compare different cultures that were geographically separated to find commonalities. And you find them, especially when you look into storytelling, there are a lot of different stories that exist and they're just weird coincidences. So when you have a fertility goddess, oh, let's say, oh, okay, I spoiled it already. When you have a god for fertility, it's, it's always female for some reason. And these commonalities that gave him the idea that there is a common ground, which is the collective which we could describe as human nature. So you have, of course, this one part is the image part, and the other part is the behavior part. 
that he described as pattern of behavior. And he would say on one hand that the archetype, of course, is something autonomous because if Jung loves something, it is unconscious contents being autonomous and acting practically every concept like anima, animus, complex, and so on. It's always autonomous stuff that interested him, that comes from the inside. That these archetypes are a bit like a crystal structure. You have the atoms of a crystal or of a snowflake, for example, that are structured in a certain way, but you wouldn't get that from the different atoms of water. It is that there is something that starts to order, let's say, material things in a specific structure. And he would say that about the archetype also, that you cannot experience the archetype directly, but you rather see what the archetype is doing, that there's some weird structuring happening, especially in the psyche, that suddenly certain contents just come together in a certain way and express themselves. He would call this being a symbol where you have unconscious contents, actors starting to assemble contents of the consciousness to resemble something, communicate something that is bigger than the sum of the parts. An example would be storytelling or even better, when you have love songs, then incredible, endless amount of love songs. And there are all variations of a certain theme. On every right, there are love songs standing for themselves, but they have similarities with all the other love songs existing. And if you would be able to find the commonalities of all the different love songs in the world, you would have something like a primordial image. Plato had this idea of prototype, perfect images and ideas that exist somewhere in the ether. And archetypes, the understanding for Jung of archetypes are very similar to that that you have something that is so abstract that you can really not experience it or understand it, but you can see how it is structuring the world around it. Archetypes in that sense are invisible like an atom for us. Of course, we now have microscopes to see atoms through specific ways, but to have something that exists, but is very hard to perceive. So, and... When you think about archetypes and human nature, Jung sees them really as an extension to instincts. Freud had this very basic understanding of instincts. He's, that's the it, that's s, that's just eating, sleeping, procreating. And Jung saw way more complex instincts in human beings and as archetypes of an extension of that, that this is a more rich representation and a more sophisticated existence of the archetypes. And you could say that in all the time when Jung talks about archetypes and the collective unconscious, it's a precursor to evolutionary biology. Because what he's arguing is that there were certain experiences in human existence that happened so often that they became ingrained in the psyche, in the brain, and in that way get transported from generation to generation. And that's in its core is evolutionary psychology, uh, which is now a very big and valid field and very interesting field. That was the stuff he was already thinking and talking about. But he took it a little bit further in this archetypal way of saying, okay, yeah, it does not only explain how the psyche is shaped to give, for example, preference to navigate preference to negative emotions because it's more important to know what kills you <laughs> than to know what makes you happy but really that there are forces inside you that drive you 
And when you see example as mating rituals in animals or even in human beings, it, this sense of courtship and getting together, there's something archetypal about it because it's typical. It's something that is happening all the time and has been happening all the time. So it's ingrained that men and women find together. And you see it, this very interesting courtship in, in animals if we stay with birds, that the birds do a dance that the opposite sex likes. And this is a very weird thing because nobody taught the birds, they just know it. And that would be archetypal behavior that you have, this sort of mini drama with a beginning, middle and an end happening. So it's more than an instinct where you would say, okay, when you surprise somebody, they would scream out. That would also be an instinct that's something involuntary. It's most likely has some evolutionary basis. but to have something more sophisticated in the sense that it can determine a person's life, how they live their life. And this mini drama, beginning, middle, end, I had this example already with love songs, which are archetypal because they have endless variations on a common theme. We can hear to a, a thousand love songs and still be surprised by the one thousand first because it always touches something inside of us. And that this makes this cultural aspects of archetype, this image representation that is in culture and mythology and religion so important because it connects us to this primordial past. I don't know how active you are on the internet, but there are some memes and certain forums where they just tell people to touch grass. So go out <laughs> and experience nature in that sense. It is this part of coming to terms with things that are deep inside of us and are natural and in that sense need attention that is always pointed out when we are interested in something that is archetypal. This is why we like stories, not only because they're interesting, but they are representing something and touching something in ourselves that we are not able to do ourselves really. Like when you have a good artist or a great artist, you can maybe do it. But for the normal person, it's difficult to have access to that. And Jung would have a lot of patients that would be bothered by these unconscious contents because they would push up all these strange imagery and this not understandable occurrences and experiences that they would feel very isolated and very alone because they were thinking they were going crazy and they were afraid of telling other people about it. He would tell them first that he would listen and uh, would ask questions about it to experience more and show interest, but also to go into his library, pick a book and show him, yeah, you had this vision of a burning wheel or whatever, but alchemists had it also in the 11th century. And this already gave people a chance to feel still belonging to the human race that they say okay i'm not completely crazy people had the same experiences as me before and it is now in the modern world this problem jung argued that this disconnect from more ancient culture means that these experiences can't be really caught in modern culture because they are not codified in modern culture at least not in that extent that people could get overwhelmed by them Archetypes are a form of living, he calls it primitively, because they are out of time. They are timeless, that, like human nature is. Human nature is very old and was living in different cultures, different climate zones, uh, different circumstances. This can be peace, it can be war, you can be rich, you can be poor. 
And in that sense, archetypes are ne never really adjusted to the world, to the modern existing world, to today's life. And it is the work and duty of consciousness to find a useful way to bring these archetypes into the world. Everything that happens in the unconscious is very muddy, dark, tangled. That's why it's unconscious. It's only the ability of consciousness to differentiate, to disentangle, to separate, which means something comes up and you're not really don't know what to do with it and how to interpret it. And this can be an overwhelming task. This is why Jung said it's important to have these cultural structures in place to give people a guidance about this to say, okay, there's not the first time this happened to you. And this means that especially to, to have this understanding when something comes from the unconscious, it's very likely symbolic and should not be taken literally. When you're dreaming and just dream about sleeping with your mother, it does not mean that you want to sleep with your mother, uh, except when you're maybe a Freudian, but rather that it shows something that can't be expressed differently. It's already the best way how to express it, what's happening inside you in the psyche that you don't know about and you're not aware about. Continuing on that note, experiencing archetypes. I attended a meetup some time ago where somebody wanted to provide archetypal thinking. His idea was he was something like a life coach. He wanted to show people how to embody something archetypically. For example, to embody the hero and not embody the villain and so on. It was a, was a nice idea. But it reminded me of Jung's insistence that you should not seek out archetypes because uh, he said it's not a good thing. Archetypes are a combination of what he said of image, what we already talked about, Im imagistic representation, but also emotion. And he said there are two kinds of emotions that you feel in these situations. Either an absolute fascination that something just catches your attention in such a degree that you're completely in awe and overwhelmed. He traced back religious experiences to that in a huge degree that people were actually experiencing archetypes as overwhelming psychic forces that they came into contact with. But the other one is fear. Fear for the strangers and not being able to quantify what you really see and what you're experiencing, something that is so out of your common world, everyday world, that you don't know how to set it. It's, it's a problem that you can't wrap your head around. And I would have this example one time many years ago, my ear was hurting a lot. And I thought, oh man, that means I'm going deaf or anything, something's wrong with my ear, something's wrong with my ear. It was a time when I played in a band and I went to a lot of concerts and I was a lot of my favorite pub and they played very loud music and I was really concerned that I would be now get tinnitus or would lose my ability to hear. And it really drove me crazy because there was something completely new, a pain, and I don't know where it would come from. I would not know what it means. I would not know really what to do. And Luckily, shortly after the pain started to come, uh, I had an appointment at my dentist and I went to my dentist. I talked with him just normally and he said, yeah, everything right. And I said, yeah, well, my ear is a little bit hurting and it's driving me crazy. And he said, oh, yeah, uh, let me check. 
And he did a x-ray scan of my jaw. And he said, oh yeah, it's your wisdom tooth and it's coming out. And I never had problems, but suddenly this would come. And he said, oh, we will take it out and then everything will be fine. And with this explanation, everything was for me okay. The, the pain got less because now I knew, oh, cool, it's just my wisdom teeth. Uh, so I know where it's coming from uh, and the doctor will take it out. So I know now the date, when it will be gone. It will be not a very nice time because very likely I will only eat soup. But suddenly it's quantified. But when you have this experience and you can't quantify it and set it in concrete terms, it can, according to Jung, really put a lot of strain on the psyche. So he said, be careful when you encounter archetypes because they're stronger than you. <laughs> and it's not a good thing. It's not something you should look out for. It's not, it's not a good thing to be visited by angels, God, or the devil. We have a whole book about it of people who had these experiences and often suffered really badly. So what you do with archetypes and archetypal situations would be first to know that you are in one because this, these are the shapers of life, Jung said. It's completely possible that you're following unconsciously because archetypes come out of your unconscious, a certain pattern or way of life that would be extremely similar to certain mythologies. For example, the young dying God. You have a young man who is extremely beautiful but is living his life like a flower so it would bloom for a short time and then it would just die and if this drama this pattern of behavior which is sophisticated because it's longer that can shape a person's life without the person knowing it it's not an individual life it's a, in that sense a primitive life because it's just living out these primitive archetypes that are completely blind for the modern world and completely blind to the individual they just exist and they don't really care about this particular human being because there's always other human beings. This is why he stressed the importance of having these cultural safety nets and also uh, rituals. He saw a lot of cultural rituals and also spiritual, religious rituals as a way to get connection to the archetypal past and to live it out in a consciously and controlled manner. He wrote a whole essay about the ritual of the mass of the Christian church and how this mirrors the life and death of Jesus and how the, this would be psychologically advantageous. All and all, it doesn't mean that archetypes are completely negative. They are neutral in the sense as an animal can't be evil. Like when a lion eats, it just it does what it does. It, there's no evil intent behind it. It's in the domain of human beings to be good and bad because humans can do things and not do things they can decide and this is morality in the end and they are useful in that sense that he describes as when you're in an extreme situation and you don't know what to do consciously that there's suddenly starting something in you like a let's say psychologically safety net that brings you to, to act in a certain way that you would not have known from you and about you, how you would act in a situation of emergency. I don't, I don't know if you had this experience before, but when you're under a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, and suddenly you can get a rush of confidence of knowing what to do, and you can just push forward, and you have suddenly an idea uh, how to resolve things. Here, Jung sees this interaction between a situation activating an archetype. 
So when the circumstances are correct, which is what rituals are trying to simulate, they activate the archetype. But this can also happen in an informal manner, just by the way how you live. That an archetype gets constellated, he calls it. That means activated and starts to get active. And then it will act through you, he says. So again, impersonal, autonomous, psychic forces taking control of your life, which is a big theme of Jung. And this is th this would be my last point I would talk about in context of archetypes in the collective unconscious. He says... When you have these archetypal forces in the unconscious that practically act on all the human beings also at the same time, that this influences not only our individual situation, but also cultural situations or, let's say, humanity situations. He saw the archetypes of shapers of religion and culture and state of minds and determining where human consciousness would be. He talks about this a lot in the Book of Ion, where he sees certain separations of human consciousness and how human beings evolve culture-wise. One thing he talks about a lot is the Greeks and the Romans, they had a lot of knowledge, even mechanically-wise. There was this device that was able to rotate by heating up water, generating steam, and to let it rotate then. But neither the Greeks nor the Romans ever had the idea to build a steam machine. They had the knowledge. They had the mathematical knowledge. They had the mechanical knowledge, and so on and so on. But for some reason, they, they never came past the point of this small device that just rotates through steam. It was basically a toy. The same way as the Romans, and I didn't know that, they could not sail against the wind. Basically, they would wait for the wind to come from that direction so that they can sail in the direction that they wanted. But they could not cross. This is one of the earliest things. When you would now go out try to learn sailing, it would be one of the first things that they teach you because <laughs> you can't just wait with your boat uh, that the wind is changing direction. So he saw that as an indication that these archetypes are pushing also humanity into certain directions and influence a huge body of people at the same time. And he saw especially the, the Second World War and the First World War also as an expression of that, that these unconscious causes now said, okay, it's time for war. Otherwise, he said, it's an individual consciousness can't decide now it's, it's time to war. It's something that pushes it from below and it needs to influence a huge body of people so that's where he saw the influence and the situations that archetypes put us in that are coming from the collective and he says the collective unconscious consists of archetypes which cannot really be discreetly defined so one critique i once saw in a video was okay yeah when jung talks about archetypes how many are there and It's the same problem, let's say, when you say, okay, instincts, how many are there? So nobody knows. We have an idea what an instinct is, and I guess we will find more and more with time. And it's difficult to separate one instinct from the other. But it's to have all those recurring innate behaviors that create very specific imagery and very specific behavior from people and create their lives and their experience 
that's what he talks about when he talks about archetypes and the collective unconscious as the very impersonal, very far removed part of the psyche in contrast to the very personal, individual life that one has. And something that one has to deal with, that's a baggage that's always on the back and has to be taken care of. It, it can't be really ignored. And what Nietzsche talked about when he decried the death of God and what he meant was this breakdown of cultural past and, let's say, fundamental cohesion within a culture was this loss of access to the collective natural part, the binding part between all human beings. And I hope this was entertaining and educational. Yeah, so now that I talked for roughly 40, 45 minutes, I would be really interested to know what you're thinking, what you're feeling about these topics or what you might know or have experienced. 